Welcome to Movement Matters, a truth-out podcast about things you should know if you want to change the world. I'm your host, Kelly Hayes. Today we are talking about the state of fascism in the Biden era, mutual aid, and building movements during apocalyptic times. And I can't think of anyone I would rather tackle those topics with than my friend Shane Burley, who is a Truth Out contributor and author of the books Fascism Today, What It Is and How to End It, and Why We Fight. Shane Burley, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having me back. I always love coming on. How are you doing today, friend? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. It's It's been a long few weeks talking about the book, and uh, with everything going on, nothing nothing ever seems to let up. There's no there's no slowdown period, it seems like. It feels like we are all forever in search of a slowdown. For years now, I've been saying that once I finish whatever epic project I'm working on, things are finally going to slow down a bit. But as it happens, this is actually my last episode before I go on sabbatical for two months, which I am really excited about. And I'm so glad you could be here for this chat, for this sort of mid-season finale moment because I've really been looking forward to talking about your new book, Why We Fight. Because I think that when Biden took office, a lot of people assumed that fascism had been defeated and that we didn't have to think about it or talk about it anymore. And that's a real problem. And I think part of that problem comes from how the idea of fascism as a threat here in the U.S. got bound up in one person who was ultimately removed from the White House and lost his Twitter handle, But right now, Republicans are taking drastic measures at the state level to curtail voting rights and the right to protest. And Democrats at the federal level do not seem to have the level of consensus or cohesion they would need to pass federal protections for voting rights. So we're looking at an explosion of new voter suppression measures and anti-protest bills that some are calling Jim Crow 2.0. And much like the Jim Crow era, we also have contingents of vigilantes who are waiting in the wings to enforce a white supremacist order. Even in states where anti-protest bills that would legalize hitting protesters with cars have no hope of passing, they represent a clear signal to white vigilantes that they have a role to play in a political project to reinstitute some very old dynamics. That project has been underway for a very long time, but Trumpism and now fantasies about a stolen election have hit the accelerator. We also have to understand these tensions within a global context, as you describe in your book, in an era of collapse, where shifting conditions are leading some countries to double down on borders and further centralize identity. But as a jumping off point, you talk in your book about the fascist fringe actually being more dangerous when they feel like they're losing. So can you say a bit about why the fascist threat isn't over and why we still need to talk about fascism? Yeah, I mean, so there's a pretty a pretty stark dynamic that's happened over the years. So when when there's like kind of an above ground fascist movement, say like the alt right that you know had conferences and then you know formed like kind of activist organizations and did these sort of like flash mobs or protests, things like that, there becomes a belief inside their movement that they can win through above ground organizing, whether it's political organizing in the form of like Trump or local level politicians or more like traditional kind of activist uh, stuff. But that inevitably fails, both because anti-fascists shut them down and also their own ineptitude. Um, and then they hit this period of retreat where a certain desperation sets in. They've been pumped full of this kind of, 
you know, eschatology of the end of the world, this, this sense of, you know, white genocide, other things, this basically desperate need to act, and then their actions are invalidated. So they don't have anywhere to put it. Um, and that creates this kind of uh, flux on the fringes of their already fringe movement where people start to take these kind of seemingly spontaneous actions, like, you know, uh, the, the, like the, the shooting at Tree of Life in Pittsburgh. It was this desperate act, they have to do something. They're gonna kill us all, we have to do something. And that pattern plays out very frequently. It particularly plays out when organizations have been allowed to grow and then they have a point of contraction. So like, for example, the militia movement was more violent when it was growing and when it was actually had um, legislators getting its back. But what happens is this kind of growth and contraction form creates a situation where people engage in like seemingly impulsive act of violence. I say seemingly impulsive because it comes from somewhere. It's not like it's just, you know, out of the air. But we have a real extreme situation with that right now, because what happened over 2020 was what I call a mass radicalization event, where basically the level of radicalization that you normally assume only happens on the far right fringe happened in a really huge swath of Republicans. I mean, we're talking about massive percentages think the election was stolen and fraudulent, which therefore implies a revolutionary politic. You know, if the government is illegitimate by their standards, then revolutionary action, violent action is likely legitimate, at least extra legal action and extrajudicial action is legitimate. And so I think now that point of retreat and that narrative about captured governments and QAnon and uh, kind of shadowy cabals, that is creating that sense of eschatology inside a much larger swath of people. And we're talking about a heavily armed populace, <laughs> one that's radicalizing itself, that's sort of self-traumatizing through its own mythology. And I think that creates a, a really dangerous situation. And then I, I think it's also important that these anti-protest bills, particularly the ones that, that legislate defense of people plowing their cars into protesters, that has the effect of not just affecting policy, but it has a, a, a reflexive effect with the public. And there's a, a real strong interplay between like what is publicly legislated and what is privately behaved as. It's sort of the same dynamic between extrajudicial violence of militia movements or of like the Klan, and other kinds of uh, white paramilitaries and the state itself, where they do have a back and forth relationship. And even if the bills don't pass, what they do is legitimize that violent action in the public and help to send a message to a largest wealth of people that this is actually how you can engage with protesters. And we're talking about dozens and dozens and dozens of car attacks in 2020. This used to be big news. You know, in 2017, when James Oxville has plowed his car, through the crowd in Charlottesville, that was big news. But in 2020, we're just talking about car attacks on almost daily basis at times. And so that said, these bills are helping to send the message that this is legitimate, that they actually are under threat, and that you can take action. Even if they don't pass in liberal states, that doesn't matter as much as the, the effect of bringing them forward, because it changes the, the kind of sense of modality of how, um, what the threat of protesters are and how is an acceptable way to deal with them. So I think we should also think about legislation, not just as changing the actual conditions of the state, but actually changing the way that the mass public responds to social norms. Yes. And narratively, we're also talking about a sort of retroactive validation of the murder of Heather Heyer and a doubling down on that kind of violence. These legislators are sending a message that if someone is punished for vigilante violence against protesters, they will do their best to make sure future vigilantes are not. We're again talking about efforts to recreate old dynamics from a time when it would have been unthinkable for a white man to be punished for attacking anyone protesting for racial justice. Because that reaching backward in time 
to some things that are mythical and never were, but also dynamics that are very real is part of what's being conjured here. It's a vision that the right is offering to its adherents. And I think it's important to examine all of this within the framework of fascism, which is something that people have spent a lot of time arguing about in recent years. We saw a lot of insistence that Trump the candidate and then that Trump the president was not a fascist for various reasons. The U.S. obviously has elements of fascism embedded in its history with native genocide, chattel slavery, and Jim Crow and some of the mechanics of fascism embedded in its institutions that people experience today, like the prison industrial complex. But with Trumpism, we saw a fascist mass movement propel its leadership into the highest levels of government, and a lot of people were still unable to come to grips with what they were looking at. And I would say many more still refuse to understand how that phenomenon has rooted itself in our society or what that could mean for us. There's a chapter in your book called 25 Theses on Fascism. And I have to tell you, after reading that chapter, I immediately texted a friend and said, you need to order this book right away. Because while I definitely recommend the book overall, I think that chapter is an essential resource in terms of breaking down for people what fascism means here and now at this moment in history. One of the things you broke down in that chapter in very simple terms was why Paxton's five stages of fascism, which were cited by some people to explain why Trump's movement was supposedly not a fascist one, doesn't necessarily capture what the formation and ascent of fascism looks like today in an era when fascists have built a lot of their traction online, waging kind of cultural warfare on the internet rather than first grounding their power in political organization. Can you say a bit about how fascism today manifests differently than it has in the past and why we can't really squeeze it into some of the historical models we've studied? You know, one thing that um, that I think is actually significant about Paxton is that he changed his opinion about that after the Capitol riot. And actually, because he saw this, he saw that actually as the expression of the paramilitary force that was lacking previously. I, I think, though, like to get at the, the core of this, though, and this is, you know, people I've gotten some feedback in the past where I don't use a lot of Marxist scholarship on fascism in any of my work. And the reason is that a lot of that Marxist scholarship looks for specific class dynamics and uses that to define fascism. You know, it's the, the splitting of the middle class or the, the, you know, the alliance between the petty bourgeois. There's all these different kind of versions of it. But what I think that relies on unfortunately, is this functionalist understanding of fascism as how it forms um, out of the different political forces rather than getting at ideologies and actually how mass movements work. And the reality, I think, is that mass movements today just work fundamentally different and actually class is, is different in some ways too. Not the kind of mass division between the working class and the ruling class, but like subclass dynamics are somewhat different. And so I think it's harder to then look at those sorts of political formations to say, oh, the party is going to work like this. It's going to try to have a totalitarian state or authoritarian state in this way. It's going to try and approach a, a paramilitary function in that way. I actually think social movements are more diffuse now. They're more based on social networks. Um, a paramilitary force would probably be today less formalized, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It also would likely not uh, rely on formal organizations at all to create that kind of mass movement. And I think what we saw in the era of Trump 
was that we had the few social movements and there were organizations, you know, Proud Boys are an organization, but there was also much larger uh, kind of just social confederations of people that came out with kind of vague political allegiances to one another. And so I think, how do you think about fascism in that future world where party politics don't dictate social politics anymore necessarily? when the states that we're working with now are much more advanced than the states during, you know, the interwar period, you know, even Nazi Germany, when we think of as a really overarching authoritarian state, was a really primitive state. It doesn't have the kind of apparatus that the U.S. has. Um, and so those things are just fundamentally different. And how people adapt their ideas is different. The role of a party in someone's life is much different. And so I think that we can't just look to those old functionalist stories about, you know, the class will move this way and the party will adapt, adapt this way and a certain kind of violence will occur. I actually think there's a more diffuse answer for it. And I think it's one that has really shifting. And sometimes I think that's unsatisfying for people because it doesn't give a very clear roadmap. But instead, I think we have to look at a few overarching qualities inside of movements and then use that as the metric for whether or not we're going in the direction that we're trying to fight against. What you're saying and what you say in the book about movements being more diffuse and power being built in online spaces that can translate unpredictably in the real world really is true of both the right and the left. And I think it contributes to a kind of unpredictability on both sides. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think so it's increasingly unpredictable. There is a shift in dynamic about how organizations work. And I think it doesn't undermine the need for organizations. It's not like an anti-organizationalist position, I think. But instead, there is, I think, a changing role for how organizations function and the relationships to like mass action. Now, like the mass of people don't exist within the organization. The organization has a different connection to them. Uh, that's true on the right as is on the left. Um, and so I think we're actually in an interesting place. And actually, this is true of 2020. 2020 is a really actually great example of, of that um, that contention between the organization and like the mass public and how those things relate to one another. I don't think that there's ever been a completely good analysis for how to manage that because we are in an era when we do have, it's not spontaneous because it actually results from years of organizing and ideological work. There's a lot of things that go into a mass uprising, but we are seeing kind of explosions at a much faster accelerated rate um, over the last five or six years. And I'm assuming that will, will increase. Uh, we have all reason to believe it will. And so I think it's actually hard now to figure out how you maintain organizations in between those periods and have the ability to actually help in periods of really kind of explosive struggle, if that makes sense. I feel like with both the left and the right generating so much power in culture building spaces, particularly online, and by generating moments and momentum, but struggling to build sustained organization that can uphold and reinforce struggle, that we're in something of a stumbling foot race in terms of figuring that out. You break down in your book how the alt-right tried to create an above-ground movement and how its organizing and coalitions ultimately exploded. But unfortunately, we have also seen how leftist organizing gets cannibalized and ripped apart or simply defanged, because in our case, there are massive apparatuses built around ensuring that we don't create sustainable membership organizations that actually take a bite out of the status quo. Some of that destructive energy comes from mainstream forces and government interference, and some of it comes from us enacting rituals of alienation from within some of which I consider legacies of Cointel Pro, But 
when you were talking just now about living in these sort of explosive moments, it made me think of something you said in Why We Fight about the roles of strikes and riots in this moment. You talked about how the disempowerment of unions and the decrease in steady wage work has led to a sort of enlargening lump in proletariat. That is, people existing as a form of surplus economically in many ways who don't necessarily shut anything down by withholding their labor. Can you say a bit about how these dynamics lend themselves to riots? Yes, absolutely. You know, there's actually a great book uh, by Joshua Clover called Riot Strike Riot um, about that change. You know, traditionally, uh, you know, the, the mass classes would engage in riots to form protests, but then as they're invited into a, a collaborative workforce through unions, the strike became that, but we're actually shifting a little bit away from that. I think there's really clear, I think there's some clear social dynamics why. You know, we, do, we have less unionization, just that we have less unions now. So generally strikes aren't as viable. Uh, that's increased, that is changing a bit uh, and that's really exciting, but the numbers aren't profoundly shifting, right? It's not, we're not talking about, um, you know, doubling of union density or something, but that's a piece of it. But also just the precariousness of the economy um, has changed so profoundly that people actually don't exist in stable workplaces where a strike always has the same pressure. You know, it's like if you're a part of the supply chain and you're all working at factories and you work there for 40 years, a strike is a big deal. It really affects that. But if you are, you know, a freelance worker and you're you're signing a, a work contract for three months and then you talk about striking, what does that mean exactly? It's a, it's a much different thing. It requires a certain type of economy and a certain kind of agency role. And in a way, we're moving to a post-worker economy in as much as like the, the traditional wage labor is changing, so it's fragmenting so, so profoundly. That doesn't mean that unions aren't as, as important. They are. It just means that the actual relationship of the strike and the unit changes a bit over time. So I think that's changing part of it. I mean, that th this is something that has accelerated. It's almost like it's the core of the dialectic because What's happening now is that through things like gig economy, but just through kind of uh, the, the, the automation and different things that are kind of increasing unemployment or maintaining a structural unemployment, that's pulling people out of the economy and it's pulling people out of quote unquote traditional work that because of its stability, um, pulled people out of kind of spontaneous or ecstatic struggle. And so you're seeing, for example, in 2020 with mass layoffs because of the coronavirus, people had the time and the ability and much less to lose by engaging in militant street action. And so I think that actually pulls people in that direction. I think there's other things about it too. I, the, you know, attacks on voting rights does not historically just make people apathetic. It actually makes them <laughs> engage in riots. Um, it makes people engage in militant extra legal uh, activism because they don't have an invitation into participation. The idea of advocacy on through like NGOs or political struggle, that requires having representation in the state or the, even the, 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 the belief or even the aspiration that the state could be like a, a you know a neutral arbiter of human rights or something, but that's not possible, and that's that's been increasingly seen to be impossible. It's it's always been impossible for most folks, but it's it's really obvious now. I think all of that plays into it, and I so I think we're shifting to a different way that we think about a collaborative political space. You know, if we were all in the same workplace, we have a clear same struggle because we're we're struggling against the boss because of our shared experience. But what's our shared experience when you know, 100,000 people head out into the streets. We have a different kind of shared experience there. It's more um, horizontal. I think ideology plays into it a little bit more frequently. I think collapsing experiences, you know, like the experience of folks uh, being attacked by the police is collapsed in with their inability to pay rent because of bad jobs and uh, 
you know, they're, they're being fired, all those things end up feeling as though they're part of the same um, structural inequality, which is true. And I think that's just made really obvious. So we're able to, I think, create these protest spaces that invite a ton of people in because the experiences we're talking about have been brought into kind of one narrative. And so I think the ability of engaging in that struggle is really important. And that I think necessitates a different a different form of action. Because if we're talking about a, a mass struggle of a million people, that doesn't just take place in the form of like a strike, or it doesn't just place its face in the form of a regional protest. Um, those things are important, but they're actually part of this larger confederation of these actions. And so I think the question now is how do you use those, whether being called traditional action, they're not actually that traditional, they're only from a period of time, but strikes, tenant strikes, those things. How do you integrate those into a larger mass action? How do you make it sort of confederation of tactics where all of those are on the table and they all find their own unique fulcrum of power? Because those, the, the thing about the, the strike is that it's an incredibly powerful tool based specifically on the position of the worker in the workplace versus the riot, which is actually about numbers and its ability to take on the system in physical space. So I think those things um, have to exist in a collaborative fashion. It can't be one or the other. So let's talk about the end of the world. <laughs> We're living in a time of mixed messages around the apocalypse. The idea of saving the world is pretty deeply embedded in social justice messaging but those of us who don't avoid reading climate coverage know that the oceans are acidifying and a mass extinction event is underway. Even people who do avoid reading in-depth articles on environmental collapse, which I think is most people, see news stories about historic hurricane seasons and more expansive wildfires each year. And some are already experiencing these catastrophes themselves. So the dissonance between the idea of saving the world or even improving our way of living, and this looming sense of doom is a real problem for our movements. A lot of people seem to deal with it by not acknowledging how bad things are, but that doesn't really work either. I know people, for example, who used to work for some of the big environmental NGOs who left disillusioned because the messaging the organizations were fundraising on was stopping climate change when they knew that nothing they were advocating for was going to stop catastrophic climate change. So when you have people walking away from their work because they feel like they're lying to people they're supposed to be activating and like nothing they do within these formations is going to shape any outcomes, something obviously has to give. In your book, you offer a different take on the apocalypse, what it means and how we have to understand it in relation to our work. Can you say a bit about that? Yeah, I, I think what it comes down to is that we can't stop this thing. Um, that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. God, no, it doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't mean that. Um, because we need to fight with kind of every piece that we have. It's sort of like the blood of the fight that has to happen. But the idea that we are going to stop catastrophic climate change and all of the permutations of consequence that that brings with us, that is an absolute fable. And it's one that we have to abandon because it is not allowing us the clarity needed to see what we actually have to do. Instead, I think we have to think about this more as a how do we get to the other side and hopefully on a long-term basis, 
change the fundamental precepts that started the problem in the first place. And that's going to, there's only radical solutions there. There's absolutely no reformist option that will address that. I mean, look, I'm happy about electric cars. You know, if I can buy an electric car, I'll probably buy one, you know, but the idea that these sorts of reforms are getting us to to stop what is basically an avalanche of crisis is it's more the wishful thinking. It's sort of like, um, like, a, like delusional mythologies that we're creating simply to exist. And so I think it's, it's really important that we, we start to kind of reanalyze what these terms like apocalypse even mean. By any measure, we are living through what people feel emotionally as an apocalyptic event, you know? So I opened the book by talking about what was happening right when I was writing the introduction, which was the mass forest fires. So like, you know, in the sort of fall of 2020 in Oregon, up and down the coast really, but Oregon specifically had really mass forest fires. I think 12, 12% of the state was on fire. And the smoke was so profound that it became the worst air quality in the world. We couldn't go outside. We were, you know, inside my house, we were running multiple uh, air purifiers. But of course, air purifiers became like a scarce commodity that you couldn't actually get. Anytime I went outside, I had to use an actual gas mask. And it basically changed the color of the sky to have this really deep kind of blood sickening red a lot of times, which really does speak to this kind of like blood moon apocalyptic eschatology you see a lot from evangelicals. So there really was this sense that like, you know, as the smoke is blotting out the sun, that we're living in the era prophesied, right? Like we are living through a max climate collapse, um, protests are happening around the country against uh, you know, white supremacist police violence. Uh, we have the coronavirus, this is a tough time. Like no matter where you are at, this is, this is tough. And so we have to kind of think about what does it mean to have an apocalypse? Now there's a couple of things here. I mean, on the one hand, we're not stopping the crisis anytime soon. Like, and so we have to think about what in a way a post-crisis society would look like. How do we get to the other side? How do we survive as best we can? And how do we change things? So hopefully in the long-term sense, in the long-term like human civilizational sense, we're actually able to sustain as a species. And then I think the other part is what does it mean? What does the end of the world actually mean? And I think I explore that a bit in the book is that if we're talking about the kind of crisis you see in like, you know, Christian circles um, where we're talking about, you know, increased uh, violence, increased collapse, things like that. Well, that sounds like the world. That just sounds like what we live through now, but more so. I mean, to actually end the world would be to end the conditions we're living through now. And that would only be true as if we replace it with something else. And so I think if we were talking about the apocalypse and the experience of the end, we actually need to think about what comes next. I think that's what actually puts this to end for one. And two, it's the only option we have. I am going to briefly interrupt us with a pre-recorded fundraising appeal because Truthout is a nonprofit news organization and the vast majority of our funding comes from readers and listeners like you. We've experienced a bit of a slowdown in donations recently, which may have something to do with Facebook ramping down engagement with political content. But we are still here delivering award-winning independent journalism. We are a union shop, and we have not laid anyone off during the pandemic, and our family and sick leave policies are the best in the industry. So if you believe in what we do, please consider stopping by truthout.org to make a donation today. I appreciated your framing of the apocalypse as posing a question, whether there is a world to come beyond the world we know which I saw as a challenge to imagine change and transformation in both good ways and bad. 
really slammed up against this, I feel like, as an organizer early in the COVID-19 crisis when I was trying to get people to take action and no one wanted to believe that what I was saying was going to happen could be true. Other leftists didn't want to believe me. People who I know generally respect my judgment were ignoring me or telling me it wasn't going to be that bad and to stop panicking. And it was because none of them could imagine their worlds changing to the extent that I was outlining. A lot of people, including a lot of people on the left, are navigating these apocalyptic times by latching on to degrees of separation between themselves and what they perceive as apocalyptic. They put hard limits on how much they can imagine their own worlds changing. And people scoffed at me and some publicly mocked me during that time because to them what I was saying had to be alarmist or absurd because they could not allow themselves to imagine their worlds being altered to the extent that our worlds were ultimately altered during the last year. And I think that tendency has held us back in very real ways. We imagine ourselves as living outside the reach of climate collapse or war or pandemics or prisons. We will not reckon with any of these expanding catastrophes with the urgency that these things require. This is one of the reasons I loved your focus on mutual aid and why we fight. I found it really grounding after the events of the last year. I have had a lot of frustration around trying to address not just the failures of government that we witnessed during the pandemic, but also our social failures in terms of people failing to shift their behaviors in ways that could have saved a lot more lives. Because I know we have that potential, and I don't think that selfish or self-serving actions are fundamental or inevitable. And when I say these things, people immediately remind me that so many people did come together to help each other and that it was truly unprecedented. And it's like, fam, no, I was there. I was one of those people, and I am so proud of and heartened by so much of the work that happened. But I'm also a strategist, so I'm not just going to talk about the times and places where things went right, because we lost too many people, and I think we have a massive opportunity to learn here in terms of what effective organizing in a moment of collapse looks like. I also feel like there's a kind of mental rewrite that a lot of people have authored where there are two sides. Those of us who banded together and took precautions and cared for each other and the anti-maskers who spit at cashiers and spread misinformation and hoarded all the toilet paper. And that's just not what happened. Because we had a lot of people out there who I think had the potential to get it right, people who generally share a lot of my own values, who either acted in ways that were explicitly harmful or just floundered. And when I talk about this, I always get attacked for blaming individuals. I feel like that's only true if we're looking at this through some kind of punitive lens. Because I'm not looking to indict these people or hold hearings or shame them for their vacation photos on social media. I am asking myself what we can build and do differently that would generate different outcomes that those people might play a role in. Because I believe most people have the impulse to help one another in times of crisis. And there's a lot of history and scholarship that agrees with me on that. But you need certain things, right? For one thing, people need frameworks that emphasize that their actions and sacrifices have meaning. I think people settle into modes of thinking and modes of being when they're flung into a crisis and that we need to learn from what just happened and figure out 
where those modes of thinking and doing need to be constructed now, because there's a lot more crisis ahead. So how do we build out that fabric and infrastructure? I mean, that's a really good question. And so I think it, it may be the hardest one about this. I mean, I, what, one piece of this is that, mutual, so I, and I talked about this book in the book, but mutual aid work was better this time around than it has historically been. Not, not in every instance. I mean, there's, there's instances of profoundly better um, mutual aid work, you know, like, uh, like the Panthers survival pending revolution programs. There, there's a number of examples, but we did a particularly good example um, pretty quickly in a lot of instances this time. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. I think that uh, one was that the technology actually is better and easier to use now that that creates a really option. Uh, I think it was a really mass crisis that everyone kind of experienced, at least in the beginning, there was a lot of um, shared uh, fear about it. So it actually put people on the same page. The state also was completely unable to provide services, not just uh, not just that it didn't provide good services or it didn't do it in a good way. It was unable to do it, period, which sort of necessitated the mutual aid. And I think that actually speaks to what the ongoing crisis actually will be, not just of a counter power situation where we think we can do it better than the state or we want to replace the state, but the state is not even able to live up to its promises anymore, which creates a, a vacuum in a space for us. But I think part of this is that to really do this well, you can't invest in the crisis. You have to invest in the lull period. You have to actually build standing organizations that have the ability to not just do structural work, but have the ability to make the case in people's lives to constantly integrate this stuff. And that's something that we're not particularly good at. And we're actually especially bad at in this area of the organizational approaches. And so I think that's that's part of the work that has to be done. We have to look at what organizations exist and how do you pivot them to include mutual aid work? That's really important. But maybe that's only surface because there are deeper problems, I think, at play in some of these spaces. And there was a lot of this this sort of like in-group, out-group mentality that existed in left spaces that proliferated inside mutual aid in particular that was wholly toxic and didn't have a space for people that weren't kind of immediately shuttled into subcultural spaces, into these friendship networks. And that particularly affects people in marginalized groups, you know, people who are experiencing chronic illnesses, people who have, you know, three jobs, people that have a lot of things that pull them out of those kind of permanent recreational spaces in a way that end up acting as the fulcrum. And we're continuing to rebuild and kind of rebuild these, these antiquated radical spaces that basically prop up more of these kind of social divisions that don't include people in, that don't move them along, that don't create actual community, but instead just kind of replicate friend groups or cliques or uh, boundary-based organizations that lack the kind of inclusivity that I think a revolutionary approach has to have. The reality is that a mutual aid movement is only as good as its actual ability to sustain an entire community. If it's just, you know, if it's just members of some X, Y, and Z radical organization, then it might as well be the Elks Lodge because that's really all it's doing. And I understand the value of having tight friendship networks and you know having a brand to associate with that, that's fine, but we can't pretend that that's done something else. And I think there's a lot of work that has to be done to make people a mutually collaborative space. I, I think most mutual aid groups were stunning in their ability. And there's also ones I've talked to that worked really hard to keep people out and I don't understand why in every situation. That's not by any means the majority of them. Most of them have every accolade that they should deserve. But we need to also think about how do we bring people into that? How do we meet people where they're at? And that's really important as well. Shifting gears for a moment, 
I want to talk a bit about Daniel Baker, who was recently convicted after a two-day trial on two counts of transmitting a communication and interstate commerce containing a threat to kidnap or injure another person. Now, what happened in Baker's case is that we have someone who made statements on social media calling on people to defend the Tallahassee Capitol on Inauguration Day if the building came under attack by a mob of white supremacists as part of a Trumpian insurrection. Baker said, quote, this is an armed coup and can only be stopped by an armed community, end quote. Now, Baker faces a maximum sentence of five years in prison a $250,000 fine, and three years of supervised release for making these statements online. This brings up a number of concerns. Many of us warned immediately after January 6th that any focus on going after supposed terrorists as the problem would quickly be turned on the left because that's what always happens, and we see it happening here. The fact that the entire case hinged on these vague, highly theoretical statements of bravado, like if white supremacists show up with their guns and try to overthrow the government, then other people should be there with guns to prevent a coup. The fact that this was treated like some kind of fully formed conspiracy against real people is absurd. Baker's lawyer characterized his client's statements as, quote, equivocal, conditional, and failing to show an intent to immediately inflict injury, end quote. I tend to agree, but if we look at the criminal complaint against Baker and the probable cause laid out by the FBI, the situation gets even more worrisome. Interstate travel to participate in Black Lives Matter protests, identifying as an anarchist, sharing a video about first aid for protesters, and even photographing law enforcement are all cited as evidence that Baker posed a potential threat. Baker's posting an eat the rich meme is also cited as a threat. And I have to say, as a connoisseur of eat the rich memes, I find that troubling. (laughs) In, In all seriousness, I am always telling people to be careful what they say online, because as we have seen historically, bravado and sarcasm do not play well when your posts and DMs are being read back to you in court. But the reach here is extreme. Baker also posted about gun ownership and about the need to be willing to show up armed, but as uncomfortable as some liberals may be with guns, we have to remember that gun ownership is legal and right-wingers hold armed assemblies all the time. And their rhetoric is often a lot more heated than anything Baker said. Personally, I am really worried about what this case signals in terms of how law enforcement plans to leverage the Capitol attack. We have already seen the passage of a massive bill to fortify the Capitol police who failed to adequately defend the Capitol that day, not because they were under-resourced, but because they simply didn't plan to defend it. I feel like a lot of people immediately embraced this framing of terrorism as the big concern right after January 6th, which couldn't be more disastrous because that highly flexible terminology as a container for our fears has leveraged the public's complicity in atrocity and the evisceration of our own rights for decades now. At some point, we have to have a firmer analysis of what we're afraid of and why and how to stop it. So what do you make of this case? 
Yeah, you know, I, I think what's so funny about some of the things that evidence was listed, I was like, I do all those things, you know? Um, <laughs> right? <laughs> they're talking about me, y'all. Um, but really, they're talking about us. Uh, they're talking about all of us. That, that, that what they listed was an outline of qualities and behaviors and evidence, quote unquote, that describes most of us, which basically su suggest, wants to suggest that there's sort of this mass criminal conspiracy of ideological allegiances that we're all kind of collaborating something on the borders of terrorism or, or the borders of extrajudicial violence or something like that. Ignoring the fact, I mean, like, and I, again, this is this is why the liberal approaches to the things of you know fortifying police against terrorism or gun laws, things like that, get turned back on the left almost immediately. They get turned back, and actually, more specifically, they get turned back on marginalized communities almost immediately. And it's why those don't, while seductive, I think, you know, as a solution for dealing with insurrectionary white supremacists, it doesn't actually provide a solution. But I think yeah, what this does is help to reframe radical activism as something on the fringes of legality and that basically kind of cultural modalities like eat the rich memes. And, yo, I love me some eat the rich memes um, that those suddenly become evidence of this kind of terrorist cultural affiliation. And that, you know, on the one hand, prosecution is is one thing to be worried about, right? Like being prosecuted for something like that. That's that's terrifying. Just like the J twenty arrestees, that's number one. But these are also evidence for lots of other things: RICO cases, lawsuits, which could be a, just totally destabilizing to entire communities, um, grand juries, other kinds of investigations, firings at work. There's all kinds of things that come along with this. Just like we were talking about the effect of legislation on non legal quote unquote activity that has the effect far beyond this prosecutorial limits. So I, I think by suggesting that, for example, retweeting a meme about you know, eating Ted Cruz or something is going to be indicative of, of something that's far beyond the norms of society, that's gonna end up creating millions of people who are sort of like refugees from legality that are suddenly not actually considered a part of the discourse of you know, polite society. And so like, I think it is something to be concerned about. I think it's also important to be concerned that, that liberals aren't going to stop this. And in fact, in a lot of ways, I expect them to outflank the right. You know? um, so these bills to sort of fortify the police, you know, the police didn't stop the, it, yeah, like you said, it wasn't that the police were like underfunded and understaffed that didn't stop them. They didn't stop the capital insurrection because they're police. And that's, there's no amount of fortifying them that's going to change that. There's no liberal funding measures that will, that will fundamentally shift the dynamic. Um, and so I think it, we, we have to actually think about it in terms, it's, in a lot of ways, it's the same thing with gun control. Um, gun control measures are not suddenly going to disarm the right. It's not fundamentally going to happen. You're not going to pass such effective gun control that that will happen. And more often than not, gun control measures are still used to basically bust up marginalized communities to basically fortify police in marginalized neighborhoods to go after folks. And that has historically been the role of it. And if we don't actually reckon with the fact that these liberal measures don't actually help people that are being affected by this, then we're not gonna have any solutions. And so I am concerned that as Biden and, and like the Biden-Harris administration try to position themselves as being exceptionally liberal because of the PRO Act or because of environmental legislation, that they will allow through these sort of legal measures as a way of saying, look, leave politics to us. You know, we don't want to be a part of those kind of Antifa radicals, that kind of thing. Instead, we're the positive face of progressive politics. And I think that helps them bifurcate between like good liberals and bad leftists. And by allowing these measures to go through, I think they have a stake in that. You know, Biden has no stake 
in fighting for this guy. Like Biden has no stake in fighting for people that want to eat the rich. Like he has, he gets nothing from it. Um, as do most liberals, their their model has nothing that correlates with our political vision. So we can't think of them as allies on these particular issues. And also, we can't, I think, be brought in by these seductive ideas about policing the far right. You know, it. it I think, I think people who might be horrified by the FBI and like kind of the the apparatus that makes up federal law enforcement, but then we'll kind of applaud them being applied to the far right. And I get it. Fuck, as much as anybody, I want to see the FBI take down a bunch of neo-Nazis. Nothing makes my day more. But the reality is that fortifying the FBI doesn't just take down neo-Nazis, even if that's your entire function for it. Even all the measures that you think are specific to neo-Nazis or specific to the militia movement, it will be used against marginalized communities because the state is there to do that. And there's no amount of changing that dynamic that will ever shift the results of it. And so I don't think, I think by looking at that and thinking, oh, let's just pump money into law enforcement to go after these particular radicals, uh, not the other radicals, you're not going to get the results you want. And instead, you have to think outside of the state for that. Another thing I find disturbing about Daniel Baker's case was the government highlighting the fact that in 2017, Baker joined the People's Protection Units, or the YPG, which was fighting in Syria against the Islamic State. As far as I know, Baker's participation in YPG being cited here as evidence of terrorism marks the first attempt by the U.S. government to go after Americans for having participated in that struggle. So I think that's something to watch as well in terms of the government sort of retroactively, indirectly criminalizing that participation in internationalist struggle. Yeah, I think it's, it's also looking back at something that was explicitly not criminalized, like his participation in, in supporting the movement that, frankly, the state itself was actually in support of, like, are you fighting ISIS? Um, but then using that retroactively as some a way of criminalizing him or, or, or creating, like, this extra legal argument about their behavior. So I think it, it also looks back that, you know, as things change in the state, anything you did do may be subject. You know, like your deep past maybe uses evidence against or of your criminality. So it's not like, you know, uh, going forward, you can suit and tie up and suddenly, you know, you're going to be real respectable and you'll totally be safe. That's not the case. And I think much like Baker's position on armed struggle and gun ownership, his participation in YPG offers something that allows liberals to distance themselves from him. He's not like them because even though he's an army veteran, which people tend to venerate in this country, he took up arms in a foreign struggle. And that's well outside the bounds of anything most liberals can imagine or identify with, even if they agree with the underlying cause, like helping people defend themselves against ISIS, because the government's supposed to have a monopoly on violence at all times, even though most liberals will acknowledge that the government is a completely untrustworthy administrator of violence. Yeah, absolutely. I think in a lot of ways, that's what the threat is. And in a way, I think that actually gets to the heart of the liberal problem with radicals is that they fundamentally believe that the state, though imperfect, is going to be the thing to reform so that it can treat everybody fairly and that the state itself is part of the liberal project or the post-enlightenment project is going to fundamentally defend us. And then what radicals do is the same thing that right-wingers do, which is they engage in, in you know, anti-liberal politics. They take action in their own hands. They, they lack the accountability of the democratic process as if 
you know, American democracy is like accountability. Um, and, I, and so I think that they are unable to see, I think, the inherent inequalities in the system that exist, but they're irreformable. Um, and when you, I think when you look at it that way, it's really actually hard to see why people believe in self-defense or why people uh, fundamentally will never trust the police, you know? And so I think that there's like, there's kind of a, an unbridgeable chasm there, which makes a lot of liberal politics quite dangerous to people's safety. I think liberals and even some leftists have a tendency to imagine themselves as distinct or removed from the worst consequences of what this government does and is capable of. I think we saw a flash of people sort of losing those illusions during the George Floyd protests when the handling of the pandemic led a lot of white people to reckon just for a moment with their own disposability under this system. And I think because of that brief reckoning, people were more capable of solidarity. But I think the fact that it was an election year led people back around to the idea that we could find salvation at the ballot box. But the fact is, the Democratic establishment is at a disadvantage in a lot of ways right now, as the effects of inequality become increasingly drastic under late capitalism and fears around scarcity set in. There is a hunger for change. And while Biden has talked some progressive talk, what we are getting is pure neoliberalism. So the rise of fascist populism is still very much a threat. And Republicans are busy rigging the game to make sure they don't lose the next time around. So having said all of these incredibly daunting and depressing things, I know you and I are both people who have a lot of hope and that we're both really engaged with people and projects that give us cause for hope. So as we enter this new chapter that isn't really post-pandemic, but where more of us are vaccinated and more people are venturing out into the world again, what projects or political developments are you seeing that are giving you hope? Well, I think what gives me hope is that the uh, insurgent organizing that came um, that came in 2020 hasn't stopped. Um, the size of it was profound and has continued. You know, things go through phases, obviously, it's ups and downs, but the fact that this is continuing, that our kind of, that the revolutionary turn, particularly in confronting police violence and white supremacy has become so sort of generational that I don't see it ending. And I feel like it's only radicalizing further and people are seeing themselves in the open struggle against white supremacy as finding their role in it and feeling it as it's something that they actually have this, like a really deeply laid stake, that's important. I think that's changing. I think solidarity with Palestinians has hit a new kind of uh, crescendo. And I think that's actually changing the game quite a bit on that. Um, the labor movement is in a massive upswing and the, the situation is changing quite a bit. I know people are very depressed and should be about what happened to Amazon, but across the country, the last three or four years, things have really shifted and we see the opportunity to really change that dynamic and also to change it for a different type of workforce, a changing workforce. You know, you don't just have to be, you know, you know, a healthcare worker for 20 years. Now, like unions are, are showing up in labor organizing is showing up in a different way. Same thing with tenant organizing, that has become a lot more common sense nowadays. And so I think we're seeing the ability to create independent tenant organizations that are coming forward. I also think that a lot of the mutual aid groups that were started in 2020 or, or basically came to capacity in 2020 are continuing. People know that they are necessary. And so I think that's creating a, a new situation. I, 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 
I actually have every reason to be optimistic. To be perfectly honest, I I I don't want to be too like rose colored about things, but there is so much here that has the capacity to really take on what we're after, and it doesn't mean it will. You know, things change on a dime sometimes. But I think we have all the tools there. We have it's based on relationships. We have to deal with our contradictions. We have to deal with the um, particularly like the oppressive politics inside of left spaces, which don't just disappear. But we have every reason to believe, I think, that things have changed, that we're able to build social movements and organizations to capacity to do what we need them to do. And that's what I kind of write about in the book is that the, the idea that we can reach a post now world, like the, where the rules are fundamentally different, I actually think we have the tools for that. And whether or not we build it is, is another question. But I do think that the conditions are right and that people have changed profoundly and we've actually seen a sort of pathway. Uh, we only have to kind of see it through to the end. I absolutely agree. I think there's so much to be hopeful about. And even in the ways that we're falling short, I see so much opportunity for growth. And I think that part of that growth has to be getting people to understand that in this hyper alienating society that's ready to abandon or devour us at any time, living in struggle is actually a better, more well-supported way to live. The people I know who were engaged in community work and who were part of communities that struggle together had far better support systems during the last year than people who didn't. And a lot of us found a lot of joy in those spaces because there is a lot of joy to be found. Because to me, creating space for that joy is non-negotiable. Struggle is where I live. So of course there will be joy there. Meaning, purpose, collectivity, but also definitely joy. Yeah, I, I think, you know, people think of these things as like a means to an end. That like a protest, for example, is a means to get something to change. And therefore, once it changes, the protest ends and you were successful. But I think what people are encountering now is that that we actually have to live in a state of permanent revolution where actually what we engage with, what people have called activism isn't as much. It's actually a different way of living. Uh, it's becoming engaged and responsible for your community and for yourself in a way that most people don't live. And that's a joyous way to live. That's a very alive way to live your life. And I think that breaks down the barriers of representation and mediation that people have really alienated people. And so I think what we're engaging in now is not just the pressure that we'll see something different. We're actually just rebuilding our societies and our social relationships. And that I think is the revolutionary process that reaches a tipping point. So I think we should be joyous in those spaces. We should be excited that these things happen and we can live and validate that excitement and we can live with the happiness of it. Well, Shane, this has been an amazing conversation as always. I wanna thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me back. And I hope everyone will pick up Shane's new book, Why We Fight, from AK Press. And I hope you all already have a copy of Shane's first book, Fascism Today, What It Is and How to End It, which I have always considered an essential text. I also want to thank our listeners for joining us today. And remember, our best defense against cynicism is to do good and to remember but the good we do matters. Until next time, I'll see you in the streets.
Thank you for listening to Movement Memos. This show wouldn't exist if it weren't for Truthout, and Truthout's independent news and commentary wouldn't exist without listeners and readers like you. We have no paywalls, no corporate sponsors, and no ads, except for fundraising appeals like this one. So if you can and would like to support our work, please consider dropping by truthout.org to make a donation today.